I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. On this podcast, rather than reviewing movies, two thumbs up, two thumbs down, loved it or hated it, we look at them in terms of what we can learn from them as screenwriters. We look at good movies, bad movies, movies that we loved, and movies that we hated. This podcast is offered absolutely free and with no outside advertising. So if you like what you hear, please help us reach our goal of 10,000 listeners by subscribing to us on iTunes and writing us a review. You can find a link to do so at writeyourscreenplay.com slash podcast. So today I'm really excited to be hosting my friend Mark Baumbach as a special guest on this podcast. As you probably know, if you're a listener, Mark is the writer behind the latest two installments of the Planet of the Apes trilogy, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and War for the Planet of the Apes, as well as a host of other really successful blockbusters like Insurgent, Total Recall, The Wolverine, Live Free or Die Hard. So first, I just want to say thank you for joining us. And Mark and I are going to be talking about process together. So welcome, Mark. Thank you, Jacob. So... Let's just start off with a couple of questions. The first thing I'm curious about is, you know, a lot of our writers work in collaboration with other writers or are thinking about doing those kinds of collaborations. And you've had a couple of different kinds of collaborations on the Planet of the Apes franchise with Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver on Dawn, and then with Matt Reeves, the director on War. And I'm kind of curious about what those processes were like for you. And for you, like, what's the difference between working with a partner coming in to help out with a project like you did on Dawn or working on a script alone? Um, Well, you know, the thing is, other than the Planet of the Apes films, I've actually never co-authored anything. And truthfully, the only film of the two that I co-authored was The Last One War, which Matt and I truly wrote together from beginning to end. So... How I came on to the Planet of the Apes films, actually, when Rise was heading into production, Rick and Amanda, who were creators of Rise, of the Planet of the Apes, um, were getting a little bit, uh, I don't even know how best to put it. I guess it would be a little written out. It was a really, really intense uh, pre-production. They were doing lots of cutting edge things. There was just a lot of moving parts. And Rick and Amanda were also producers on the film. And so they, along with other producers, decided it would be great to get an extra set of eyes on this. And so I came on and did um, some pre-production, uh, inter-production rewriting and got to work with Rick and Amanda as producers. So I would sort of vet what I was doing with them, but we didn't actually write together. Uh, and in fact, I don't even get credit on Rise because the work was really surgical and had more to do with just, you know, sort of finessing things. When Don came around, Matt Reeves wound up replacing Rupert Wyatt, who was the initial director of Don. And when Matt came in, really had a lot of work to do. And so uh, the studio asked if I would come on and and help Matt sort of realize his vision. So although Rick and Amanda had written a script for Rupert Wyatt, that was sort of the the starting point of Dawn. When I came in again, it was really me working as a writer alone. Actually, that's not entirely true in that Matt and I were sort of collaborating, but Matt was really the director and I was the one doing the writing. Although as we sort of got deeper into production itself, because we had such a crazy time frame on that movie, Matt and I really were almost functioning like co-writers as well. And so when it came time to work on war, uh, we both agreed, let's just actually, now we have the luxury of time a little bit, let's write it together from beginning, from the very, very start. And so it's really the only time I've ever truthfully co-written. And I wound up loving it 
And since the screenplay work on war, I've gone back to writing by myself. And while I do enjoy having the freedom, certainly in terms of my schedule, uh, but also having a little more say as to where things are going and don't need to vet everything through my partner, I really do miss having a partner. And Matt and I became super close friends as well as colleagues while, while working on it. And to this day, we'll vet things with Matt on other things I'm working on and, uh, and, and vice versa. And I really came to appreciate what it meant to have a writing partner. You know, it doesn't make the process go any faster. If anything, it actually, I think in my case at least, makes it take longer. But what you wind up doing, again, I can only speak for myself and Matt, is I think you generate fewer drafts because you wind up talking through everything sometimes ad nauseum, but to the point where you vetted a lot of things within the scenes before moving on. Whereas when I work alone, I tend to sort of want to get to the last page and then see what I've got and go back and, and go through again and again and again. So it's a very different way of working. And it was also less lonely. You know, um, most of my days spent alone in my office, certainly today. A good example, I've been in my office since about nine in the morning just writing. And while, you know, I love doing that, that's certainly why I chose being a screenwriter as a vocation. Um, it's lonely and there's something great about having someone to shoot the breeze with while you're working. And I felt like Matt really uh, helped me sort of dig deep and find the best ideas that were in my head and then vice versa. It was really fun to sort of dig into Matt's head and say, well, you know, is this the best version of this or can we do any better? So long-winded answer to your question. That's, that's my experience with collaborating. I actually started out writing on a team as well. I worked with a writer named John Wyrick on several projects. And it was interesting for me how different that was. And, you know, John and I were an interesting team because we had very different things that we were into. You know, I love to like blow out that first draft. And John loved to like go back in and work through those pages, tweaking things, making everything perfect. And so we had a kind of interesting balance. Um, and we kind of developed over the years as a process of writing together. I'm curious, like, what was your approach working with Matt? Everyone has their own version of how they work. But Matt and I, every morning, uh, well, morning Matt's time, noon my time, our Skype would be up. And we had a program called Screen Hero, which allows you to share a computer. And so we would use my final draft program, but Matt could literally type onto my computer across the country. Matt lives in LA, I live in New York. And so we would truly write the script together. Like, in fact, we had a funny way of working where everyone has their own crazy ways of working. But in this case, if I had like a line of dialogue that I really wanted to sell Matt on, but I know I don't act very well, rather than pitch him the line, I would sort of, I would say, what about this? And then I would type the dialogue into the dialogue section and then Matt would read it. And he would say, okay, yes, I get it. But what about this? And then he'd change a word in it and then read it back. You know, so that's sort of how we did it. But it was really on a word-by-word -word basis that we wrote the script together, which um, in a weird way, I think you could only do in cyberspace. Like, I think if we sat in the same room, we'd still need to hook up into one computer and have two keyboards because you can't sit and type on one keyboard. So we had two keyboards going at the same time into Final Draft and just would write together. And if we'd get on a tear in terms of even something like stage directions, some person would just start writing the stage directions. And then the other person would say, stop, 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 I have an idea, and then circle right back into the stage directions and add something or subtract something. So that's how we worked. We, we literally never had a, a moment of a script, of a script page um, generated without both of us staring at the screen at the same time. 
And did that affect the nature of the product that you ended up with or the theme of the product that you ended up with compared to, to most of the scripts that you've done where you've really had the freedom to sit in the room alone and dream up whatever came to you? It's hard to say. I mean, I do think it's one of the best, if not the best scripts I've ever worked on. So I'm guessing part of that is simply a function of two people collaborating. Oftentimes when I work on a script at some point, the director is with me and they're, again, not necessarily writing, but collaborating. And any script I've written that's turned out well has always been the result of at some point a really useful month or two spent with the director in pre-production or or even ahead of pre-production getting the script to really fire on all cylinders. And mostly that has to do with digging deep in terms of the themes of the story and how do the characters' journeys sort of service those themes, things that are less plotty and more thematically oriented. And I think because Matt and I work in such a unique way in that we wind up constantly watching films while we work, um, we would even have, we would sort of watch YouTube clips of certain movies we were referencing while we were Skyping, you know, so we could say, oh, in the end of A Man Escaped, uh, there's this big silent breakout sequence that I think would be a useful thing to look at for the end of war when the apes escape the, the camp. Um, and we would have the script page open on one side of the screen and the video clip from YouTube open on the other side of the screen. It's not the kind of thing you're going to do as much if you're working by yourself because you're more inclined to sort of, let me just get through this. My kids are inside screaming. Our dinner's almost ready. Like you're going to find better excuses to just move faster. And I think when two people are working together, you, you tend to slow down and, and do deeper thinking. doesn't mean that at the end of the day, the script's going to be any deeper or better or whatever. I just think you get there a little bit in a different rhythm, you know, um, instead of just a couple of drafts that are just getting the story out before you, you know, see where else you can mine. We see a lot of blockbuster movies that seem mostly, uh, you know, involved in the pyrotechnics. And yeah. one of the things I think is really beautiful about your films is that you certainly don't skimp on the pyrotechnics. I mean, what you guys are doing with CGI is really amazing. But, you know, if we look at a movie like War, you know, there's an external war happening, but there's also a really powerful internal war happening there. And I'm curious for you, at what point does the theme start to emerge? Like, at what point did you realize you were telling a Moses story with war? Very early. I mean, I don't, anything I'm working on, that's really the first question I ask myself is like, what's the point of the story? What is this about? If I don't have the answer to that, I almost am incapable of writing it. I just did some production work, which, I, you know, again, I, I do a lot of script doctoring, right? Or, or not even, this wasn't script doctoring so much as sort of, um, just trying to get the script to the to a place where the director's ideas were were in the film, and on this new film by David McKenzie, who's shooting this this, this new movie right now, uh, Outlaw King. And when I got it, um, when we first spoke, the very first question I asked him is like, "I'm not a thousand percent sure what this is about, and I need to answer that question. And I think if we can answer that question together, we're going to solve a lot of problems going forward, so that I know what we're talking about." You know, um, I mean, movies are very expensive. And especially the ones I work on, and they need a raison d'etre, right? They can't just simply be uh, commercials, you know. So for me, I always have to really justify what is the point of this story? What are you going to get out of watching the story? I'm not, I never try to be didactic or sort of teach a life lesson or anything. I simply just think, you know, the best stories are the ones that 
make you step back and say, oh, I never really thought about that, you know, or I never thought about a character's journey as it relates to this idea. The other thing is I always am really trying to answer, you know, what is broken about this protagonist that you want to see fixed? Or what is this protagonist's problem that you think you want to see fixed, but actually they're going to fall prey to uh, their worst impulses and, you know, we'll have a tragedy at the end of the story. But both of those things sort of go hand in hand with the theme, you know. I think the films I work on that don't succeed that well sometimes are the ones where I deep down know that the protagonist arc, right, for lack of a better word, the journey that the protagonist goes on doesn't really have a very strong correlation to what the movie is about. And that's problematic for me, you know. So, um, so I always try to answer those questions actually right out of the gate before I figure out anything else. It's funny. One of our teachers here uh, is Jerry Przygi, and he was a showrunner on Married with Children, The Golden Girls, Jeffersons. He did comedy his whole life. And one of the things that he said that I think is really beautiful, he said, first you write it true, and then you make it funny. And yeah, that's a great, that's a great, uh, I always use a similar phrasing where I just say, I need it to be emotionally true, and then I'll believe anything, you know, like, as long as I believe that the characters and what they're feeling in the scene feels right, right? Like it feels earned that you understand why they're doing that. Then actually anything can happen. You're going to sort of go along for it because life is so unpredictable too. But what to me always is the most annoying thing in any fiction, let alone films, but TV, novels, anything is when the storyteller is trying to sell you on someone's emotions that, you know, deep down, they don't actually feel, you know, uh, I find that to be very distancing. And so I'm always trying to make sure the emotional truths are there, everything else falls into place. I have a feeling it's a similar approach. Yeah. I think one of the things that a lot of students struggle with when they're, when they're trying to write action movies or any genre movie, thriller, horror, comedy, is that balance between like trying to serve the demands of the genre while staying true to what's personal in you. The truth is I'm a big movie fan, you know, my favorite films are ones that are participating in a genre in a very purposeful way that they're not thinking they're above the genre. They're really trying, like I always sort of use Mystic River or Marathon Man as examples where they're not trying to be highbrow. They just are highbrow because they're so well executed on the genre front. So like, I'm always looking to emulate things that I have had great responses to. So if I'm working on something in the action genre, I'll sort of think about the best responses I've had myself to certain action films and say, okay, what did I like about those sequences? What was exciting to me, right? Like sort of the, the Die Hard, remember that, that great moment in Die Hard where he ties the fire extinguishing hose around his waist and jumps out the window. There's something that's like sort of ingenious, but also plausible, but also death-defying, like you try to find these sensations you had and why did you respond? I'm always like thinking about what can I do to create the experience that I've had while watching something else? And so that's sort of where I come from. And it's really hard to sort of isolate how a particular set piece comes to being. For me, I just tend to take a jog and sort of refuse to come back to my house until I've figured out something that seems cool. Uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. You know, and then again, truthfully, you know, when you're writing screenplays for spectacle-driven films, right, really what I'm doing is writing the idea for the spectacle. I, If I was to write down beat by beat how the action sequences were to play out, the scripts would be like 300 pages long. So really all I can do is 
have a concept and say, here's what the action scene's about in terms of who the characters are, where the story is. To me, like the best, in fact, the only sequences should that in an action film should really be ones that um, advance the narrative so that when the set piece is over, the story's in a different place than when the set piece began. And likewise, the characters are in a slightly different place than when the set piece began. So otherwise, they start to feel a little pornographic, you know, that it's simply just the spike of action for the purposes of action. It's funny, in a way, it's kind of like building a musical. You know, I, I worked for years on musicals. And what's interesting when you're writing a musical is sometimes you'll do the dramatic part first, and then the composer will take your best scene, and they come back, and now it's a song. And I was never an action movie writer, but it's always seemed to me that in a way, the best action movies do the same thing, which is the action is just a way of executing that dramatic arc or that dramatic journey for the character. That it's really about like, what's the emotional transaction happening here? I mean, it's funny, the musical I never really thought of as a, as a comparison, but it's a totally apt one, you know, and I feel like if you're writing horror, um, it, they all have their sort of, their, their needs, right? The genre is asking you to have a spike every certain amount of minutes, uh, you know, here's where the scares come, here's where the action comes. To me, the ones that are the most successful are the ones that uh, are advancing the narrative and, again, really revealing layers of character within the set pieces, right? So, like, I think a movie like Get Out, people were responding so strongly to, in part because the scares weren't simply for scares. The scares were to sort of make you think about why you're, why you're reacting the way you're reacting, you know? And I think it's, um, uh, it's really, again, what separates, to my mind at least, really, really strong horror movies from, you know, exploitation, you know, slasher horror movies. Um, I'm a big, big, big fan of horror films. And I can appreciate a slasher film as much as the next person, but I think it's what gives horror movies a bad name sometimes is that they, again, they function in the way that sex scenes function in a porno, you know, that they're just there to sort of give you the thrill and then move on. And the ones that succeed are the ones that are doing the opposite, you know, that are actually telling the story. I think that's, right. that's so, so hugely helpful, you know, especially because it's easy to get seduced by the spectacle or, you know, a lot of people will see movies that really aren't that good, that make a lot of money. And there's that feeling like, oh, well, I don't have to write something so, so great. I just have to do a bunch of genre stuff. And I think- I fell prey to that same stupidity as well. So I, I I'm, in fact, I fell prey to a big time when I was starting out. So I understand the impulse. It's, it's actually sort of arrogant, you know, because- it's this idea that like, oh, they're only doing this. Like the first of the creation of these set pieces, even if it's in a junkie movie, requires a lot of technical wizardry on the part of the people making the film. The person who's been lazy is the writer who created it, you know? So I, but I used to have the same thoughts, which is like, oh, the bar is really low. Let me just do the thing that they want, you know? And nothing I ever, ever wrote that way ever got produced. And I'm embarrassed of some of it now, you know? So I think it, it's a long road to, to realize that there's no excuse for not taking what you're doing like super seriously and trying to make the very best thing. You know, I always go to this place of like, I'm only writing something that I myself would be super excited to see. But I also, going back to the, the thing you had mentioned earlier, when people are setting down to write something in a genre and the struggles of like, how do you service the genre, but also sort of service the things that are personal to you and you're passionate about. To me, the answer is really about tone. And I think as long as you hold on to the tone, that's keeping you within the genre or futz with the tone and sort of see how far afield you can go 
with tone and still stay in the genre. Again, Get Out's a really good example. There are times in Get Out, you're like, am I in a comedy or in a, in a horror movie? But I think that as long as you maintain a tone that feels like an action film or feels like a horror film or a comedy, then I actually think you have a lot of freedom to not stress out so much about it's been 10 pages and nothing's blown up or no one's been killed or, you know, or there's not been a huge laugh yet. Like, I think you can always go back in in later drafts and say, gee, it, feel, it feels like we could benefit from a little more pizzazz here, here and here. How can we do that? And it still feels organic to the story. But I think writing to the action itself or writing to the scares is probably a mistake. I think you're going to have really flaccid dialogue right around it. And, um, and it's just, I don't know how you construct a story that way. You know, truthfully, if you watch enough films, the rhythm of, of a genre story sort of presents itself as you're working on it, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. You know, you're talking about like pushing tone because, you know, war really pushes, especially with the character of bad ape, there's so much comedy in there, but yeah. it's it, it's a pretty serious film. I mean, you're really looking at that war between mercy and vengeance. You have a character who's the most morally centered character in the film who's losing his moral compass. You have the Woody Harrelson character who ultimately goes on an extraordinarily dark journey in relation to his own son and his own life. And it was exciting to see the way that you press that comic tone with bad yeah, we ape, never also... had laughs in any of the other in the other two apes films it was really hard to do and actually the inspiration for bad apes sort of came out of yoda from empire strikes back where because that's certainly the darkest of those films and then suddenly yoda's there and, and there's something that's rescuing the movie there i knew with bad ape when we settled on the idea of bad ape we were just thrilled because our big anxiety up to that point was how dark the movie was going to be beyond Bad Ape's presence in the film. And we knew we needed something to rescue us emotionally. And life is, even in the bleakest times, life is never just always bleak. Like life always has moments of levity in it. So we loved Bad Ape. But even Bad Ape, we find a way to make you feel bad. <laughs> feel, feel bad when you find out certain details of his backstory. So we're not, we don't spare you any pathos. But, um, you know, again, that, that, thank you for that compliment because it was really... Uh, the thing we fought really hard for when we were first pitching into the studio is the need for this character and um, and the need to have levity here. It's tricky because I'll try to infuse humor in other things I, I write, and I'm not particularly funny on the page. And, you know, I'm always questioning myself, is this the right tone? But I found, with experience at least, going for it and seeing what happened. The worst case scenario is you've made a mistake and, and then you just pull back. A lot of our screenwriters have to deal with notes at different phases of their careers, whether, you know, we have some writers who have been successful in the Hollywood system and they're dealing with, you know, notes from big producers. Sometimes it's, you know, notes from your rich uncle who you convinced to produce your independent film, uh, notes from your director, notes from your star. How do you navigate, especially on movies this big? How do you navigate the needs of your producers, your directors, your stars without losing track of your own idea? Well, look, it's certainly a massive part of what it means to be a screenwriter, you know, especially if you're working in the studio system. Being a screenwriter means taking notes, right? Like it's just, if you didn't want to take notes, you should be a novelist, you know? So it's, I never begrudge the existence of notes because it's, again, it's integral to how movies get made for better or worse, but oftentimes for better. And I would say what I always try to do, even if you were dealing with the rich uncle version of this, which I thankfully have not had to deal with, but 
even then, you go to what is the intention behind the note? What is the person's agenda? Now, oftentimes with studio executives, it's fear, right? It's like fear that their bosses are not going to understand what you're trying to do, or it's fear that the movie's going to be uh, considered a failure and they're going to be blamed for it. And these people's jobs are really shepherding movies through the system. And if the movie's bomb enough, that's the end of their job. So the best studio executives I've worked with are the ones that, you know, truthfully are trying to make a great movie. But even those, like, it's just endemic to what it is to be a studio executive that you have anxiety because you have people to answer to. And so I try to sort of look at the note beneath the note. You know, what are they really asking for here? Because to me, the least useful notes are the ones that are prescriptive that say, can you do this? Can you do that? Like, that, that's not useful to me. If, if they were so astute about what needs to be in a screenplay, they'd be writing screenplays because they usually pay more than what it means to be a studio executive. You know, what what I'm looking for is like, what is the sincerity in the mix? You know, what's the thing that they're saying that actually is grounded in a desire to make the movie better? And any note I get, like, I feel like I could teach a class on just how to take notes because I get so many notes all the time. Every note I get, I always, you know, sincerely answer and say, that's a really interesting note. I see what you're asking me to do. You know, I just sort of let the person know that I'm not ignoring the note. I'm hearing the note. But what I'll say is, let me explain to you what I'm trying to accomplish and how can we dovetail what you're asking for with what I'm trying to accomplish so that we both feel like we're getting the movie to a better place. I think whatever I, whenever I'm dealing with notes, it's always like I have to keep on reminding the person who's giving the note, even the director sometimes, right? Even the actors sometimes. They're like, we're all rowing in the same direction. We're all trying to make the movie as good as it can be. And I think if you give the person that assurance that I'm not being defensive, I don't think I'm a genius. I'm just trying not to mess up what's already working and I'm trying to improve upon the areas that aren't, you know? And getting people to feel like you're working together on solving this is a big, to me, a very useful way to deal with notes. And then I've learned the hard way not to dismiss any notes because sometimes I'll get a note that seems so stupid and that I have no interest in, in servicing. And then months later, I'll look back and realize that that actually, while the person delivered the notes in a not useful way, right? They were bossy about it. They were obnoxious about it. I don't think they're necessarily the brightest person in general, so therefore I'm going to discount this one reaction they had. And then I'll look back and say, Jesus, that person actually landed on a really good idea. I wish I had thought about it a little more carefully before dismissing it. And so I've really learned to, no matter who the source is, always think about where's the truth in this, right? If it was perfect, right, the person wouldn't be able to give you a note unless it was insane, right? Then you'd say, well, that's just a crazy note. I'm not going to do it. But most of the time what you're working on isn't perfect and there's going to be something that's broken that the person usually is not able to articulate, but they can tell you the area where it's not working for them. And again, like I found oftentimes, this is not a new take, a lot of writers have said this, but it's really true, that you'll turn in a draft and if the draft got better, the person who gave you the notes will automatically assume it's because of their notes. They won't usually go through and sort of figure out where you address this note and that note. They'll usually say, gee, I guess my notes worked. You know, they're not, no one wants to be, you know, given a checklist and going through change this, 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 and this. Okay, now it's better. They just want the movie to be better. So I feel like it's the most critical, to me at least, the most critical skill that you can only build up through experience, unfortunately, because when you're starting out, every note just hurts like crazy and seems like it's going to wreck you. But when you get, 
more films under your belt or more screenplays under your belt, you start to just realize it's, it's literally just the nature of, of screenwriting at some point is just receiving notes. And it's a weird thing because every time I turn in a draft, I'm positive this is the draft that is note proof. And then I get, I get three pages of notes, you know, and I'll say, I, I, I mean, there's so many times I'll, try, I'll say, I cannot think of what could be changed in this that could possibly make this any better. I have nailed this. I'll, and then I'll get back the notes and I'll say, oh my God, I, usually it's that I thought something was working and it wasn't, you know, and then I go back and say, oh, I, I, the romantic element here that I was positive everybody would be blown away with and choked up is not landing for anybody. And I also, the last thing I'll say, and then I'll stop talking about notes is that I think it's really important to triangulate, you know? So if you get a note that's really going to be disruptive and that you feel like is going to be a, a big note here, find another person whose opinion you value, who doesn't have any skin in the game, right? Like I'm not looking for praise. I'm looking for someone to be really brutal. Like, and then I'll, I'll ask them to read. I won't tell them what the note is. I'll see if they come back with a note that's similar or the same. And if they don't, I'll say, here's a note I got. What do you think of this note? And usually, even though I'll say it and pray that the person's like, oh, my God, that's the dumbest note. Don't do that note. Usually they'll say, oh, I see what they're saying. Yeah, that could be better. And then you know that's a legit note and you really need to think about how to address it. I think it's interesting because it goes back to that idea we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation about theme. If you can find that agreement with the people you're working with about what you're building, it makes it so much easier to kind of sort out the wheat from the chaff with those notes and to, to help people understand like why this note is really helpful or, or why this note isn't really serving the intention. I think you're dead right. I mean, to me, the notes process goes bad, which it's gone bad a lot on me, when I come to the realization that we're making two different movies. I was recently working on a project and I realized that people wanted to be a lot more like the Matrix than I ever thought it should or, or wanted to be. And so in that case, it was still helpful in that I started to step back and say, well, what if it was a little bit more in the spirit and the tone of the Matrix? And while I didn't ultimately take it all the way there, like I, I, it was helpful. So, but I was, there was a disconnect initially. And part of it was that I was like, why are they asking for notes that, you know, why are they trying to turn this into the Matrix? So oftentimes it's really about miscommunication. It's like, I always say to people, especially when I come onto a film and it's late in the process, I always say that to the director or the producer, give me some comps. Like what are some movies that, and I usually say, please don't say movies within the last like year or two, but like, what are some classic films? What are some films, stories that are important to you that you're hoping this will feel like, or that this will be compared to. And in even getting those comps, you'll say, Oh, I get it. So you're trying to do like a Manchurian candidate thing. Okay. Now this is at least I'm actually understanding where your influences are. That helps me get to a place where we're making the same film. That's such a great piece of advice. Cause you know, oftentimes, especially if you're dealing with less experienced executives, they try to speak writer to you. And sometimes they're not really clear on what they're building or they're chasing whatever made money a few months ago or if they're fighting over your script or, you know, in a bidding war for your script, what they think you want to hear. And it's hard to ask those tough questions that really help you know what this person really wants. Sometimes you don't really find out what they want until you're three or four drafts in and you're like, oh, I get it. They want the Matrix. I wish they would have said that as opposed to saying, I want to win an Academy Award. And so... Yeah, I mean, the other thing is like, it's like, I feel like in the world of specs, right? I guess if you're a first time writer, you're certainly writing a spec, that there's an impulse, as you were saying, to, to talk screenwriter, right? To sort of talk about it like a blacklist script or something. 
And it, it's not like it's, it's, you're making a movie, right? So like any conversation, conversation that is just reducing the story to screenplay beats or to screenplay tropes, I find is not useful in the notes process. Like I think it's always helpful to step back and be like, what's the movie we're trying you know, These scripts are just, they're the architect blueprints for the house. You know, we're just, these are instruction manuals. So we're making a house, you know, we're making something. We're not, the script is not the end product. And it's why that I think it's dangerous to ever get too sensitive about critiques of your script. Again, if you were really anxious to avoid input, you've picked the wrong medium to work in, you know? And oftentimes I'll say to the person I'm working with, have you seen such and such movie? And if they say no, I'll say, can you just do me one huge favor and watch that film? And now you'll understand what I'm trying to accomplish here in terms of blank, you know, in terms of the, the villain's agenda or in terms of whatever, like, you know, it's helpful to have a shared set of references. And I think without those, you're really sort of groping in the dark. You know, I don't think, again, novels aren't written this way. They don't need to have a back and forth other than the novelist and, and his or her editor. And it's not the same. I think with movies, like you just need touchstones to all say, okay, we've all seen Braveheart. What do we like about Braveheart? What are we trying to do here? Again, not to copy Braveheart or mimic Braveheart, but to sort of generate that same sensation that we had when we saw Braveheart. What's, what was it doing that, that got us to, to feel that way? You know? One of the things that you've talked about a little bit is like having people who you trust who can help you with feedback about your script, with truth about what they're experiencing. I was very lucky to have a mentor who wasn't always the nicest guy in the world, but certainly taught me a ton about screenwriting. And I wonder, like, what were, who were some of your mentors and what were some of the lessons that they taught you that helped you early in your career? You know, I, I wish I'd had better mentors. I didn't have, again, it's why my learning curve was a slow, a slow one. I have really good friends who are luckily talented and we were sort of figuring stuff out together at the time. So I would critique their stuff and they would critique mine. And, but they truthfully didn't know that much more than I did at the time. I would say the first person who really sort of changed how I approached writing in general was Tony Scott, who directed this film I wrote called Unstoppable. Back, I think the film was released in like 2010, but we started working together in like 2008, I think. And again, he's not a writer at all, but his approach to getting a screenplay into shooting shape was different than anyone's I'd ever worked with before. And he just had such respect for the characters. And it's funny because, you know, if you look back at his filmography, there's a temptation to sort of write some things off as being over the top or, you know, splashy or all the other things that you could sort of level at Tony Scott's films. But if you really look at them, they're incredibly character driven. And he's just so determined to make things feel it's funny because the setups are oftentimes so implausible, but the characters themselves are quite plausible. You know, I mean, if you look at a movie like Man on Fire, for example, which Brian Helgeland, who's a fantastic writer, uh, wrote for Tony. Uh, he'll tell you, I've heard him interviewed where he said the same thing, but Tony like forces you to really dig deep and do a lot of research, which is something I'd never really done very much of other uh, before. Like he'll, he has a, or he had a guy whose entire task was to find you the real world equivalent of each character that you were writing about. And you'd spend three or four hours talking to people and even the most minor characters to just get a sense of their daily lives. And, and ever since then, that, that's been like, a, I mean, I, obviously I can't do it with Planet of the Apes, but in general, if there's any real world equivalent, I always try to find a person 
to sit and interview and talk through what their process is and their jobs. And, and, and you'll always find really great nuggets in reality that you can never make up. So Tony was probably my biggest mentor. And there was also just immense sense of satisfaction in pleasing him with your work because I had such tremendous respect for him. And so he was the first sort of huge director that I felt validated by. So he was, he was my big mentor. And I've, I've tried to mentor younger writers myself, and it's not an easy thing to do. You don't want to dissuade and you don't want to be overly critical and you want to be very aware of that they themselves are on a, on a journey to getting better. But you also want to make sure that you're giving them constructive input that's, you know, it's not going to give them false sense of security. And so when I look back now on how Tony, I was younger then, um, approached my work, I'm doubly appreciative of his attitude then. Yeah, there's a Neil Gaiman quote that I love. And it's funny because you were talking about novelists before and how different it is, but he's talking about feedback and he says, if anyone ever reads your story and tells you exactly what's wrong and exactly how to fix it, they're always wrong. But if somebody reads your story and they tell you what their experience of your story is, they're always right. And, yeah. you know, that's something that we really strayed for here at the studio and the way we do mentorship. And I hear you saying about how you do it as well, like this idea of like, it's not about imposing your ideas on somebody else. It's about helping to mine for what the writer is actually going for and helping them understand the gap between your experience and theirs. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing a bit of producing right now, and I, so I have to give a writer notes, you know, and I really try to be sensitive to that dynamic and say, you know, even though I could theoretically be working on the screenplay myself if I felt I had the right to do it, it's not my job to sit there and tell you what I think would make it better or worse because it's not going to work. It's not going to make the screenplay any better. It will definitely make it worse. And so I just, as you were just saying, I just try to clarify for them where things were really working for me and where things are falling short. And I try to be a sounding board a lot, you know, and, and I find the most useful collaboration that I have. Again, most of my notes it's at a certain point when I'm working on something are coming from the director. And so I make sure the director knows that there's no way she or he can offend me with their notes. I just want to make sure we have enough time to talk them through. And again, it's, I, I'm not looking for them to tell me, make it this way or that way. I'm just looking for them to tell me where they're not feeling what they were hoping to feel. You know. If there was one piece of advice that you wish someone had given you when you were starting out, what would that piece of advice be? I'm pretty happy with how my the trajectory of my career has gone. So I hesitate to claim that some piece of advice would have made my life any better right now. But I do think, again, I, I, I learned this the hard way. And so maybe it would be nice to have learned this the, the slightly faster way, which is don't write for anyone but yourself at the end of the day. Write the movie that you know you'd be super excited to sit down and watch. Don't think because you read a blacklist script and saw a certain style being executed in there that that's what people want. And so therefore let me write it that way. Or there's a certain movie that's in vogue right now. And let me try to write my version of that. Like everybody I know really almost without exception is a pretty good storyteller in the right circumstances, you know? And so it's really finding the thing that you want to tell another person. You know, when I talk about pitching, right? When I, if I have to pitch, if anyone asks me, how to pitch. I'm always like, just pretend you just walked out of the theater and you just ran into a good friend and they say, what'd you see? And you're going to tell them the movie you just saw, you know? And I think the same energy, uh, it should be a good movie you saw. Obviously. <laughs> so the same energy 
goes into writing. Like you should never be, look, I'm unhappy most of my day when I'm writing. Like it's, it's a slog. Nothing ever feels good enough. I'm always certain that I will be exposed as the fraud that I am. That's just sort of the nature of writing, you know, but the one sensation that you should try to avoid feeling is that you're BSing and that you're not being honest with yourself. I think you always need to be striving towards making something as good as it could be. And the definition of good as it could be should be the thing that you'd be excited to see, not what you think other people will be excited to see. I think that to me is how I wasted a lot of formative writing years was trying to write in a way that I thought how screenplay should read or how a movie will get bought faster or made faster. The most exciting writing to me is the ones where you read it and you're like, this is the only person who could have written this. This is just reads really singularly. And it's not a novel. It is, a, it is an instruction manual. It is a screenplay that's going to be manipulated and broken down and eventually become the real thing, which is a movie. But that there's such a voice to it that you just that to me is like you're just trying to make sure that when someone's reading it, they're experiencing the enthusiasm that you had when you first came up with the idea. Well, I think that is an incredible place to end this conversation. So thank you so much, Mark, for coming on the podcast and giving us so much wonderful insight. And I hope to see you soon. <laughs> Truly my pleasure. Thanks, Jacob. <laughs> All right. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Again, we make this podcast available totally free and with no outside advertising. So if it was helpful for you, please help us reach our goal of 10,000 listeners by subscribing to us on iTunes and writing us a review. It really does make a big difference in keeping this podcast free for everyone. You can find a link to do so at writeyourscreenplay.com slash podcast. For a complete transcript of this podcast or to learn more about studying with me or my faculty in New York City, live online, on one of our international retreats, or as part of our one-on-one ProTrack mentorship program, you can learn more on our website, writeyourscreenplay.com. <laughs>